Well, it is a wonderful privilege for me just to be here. Um, and then to add to that, to have the privilege to stand here this evening and open this book with you. Um, I'm praying for energy, but right now I'm thinking about you. After expending all of that energy, do you still have energy to listen to God's word? I want a commitment from you. <laughs> I am very grateful, Bob. Thank you for the invitation. So you get an email. It contains uh, an invitation, and the specific request is that you might preach on the topic Christ, our saving substitute. You feel immediately the weight and the gravity of that assignment. Your instinct is to respond immediately, yes, of course. But already you feel some trepidation. You check your calendar. You talk to your wife and to the other elders, and you pray. And a few days later, you send back a reply saying, yes, I can come. <laughs> and then, right at that moment, you sit back and you start thinking, right, about where you're going to preach from. And over the following days, your mind goes in 50 different directions, and they're all exciting. <laughs> you think about Romans 3, and that amazing passage where Christ's, he's set forth as the propitiation of our sins. And then you think, no, Romans 5, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And you think, no, Romans 8. And then you think, what am I thinking? Romans, Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 7. No, 9. No, 10. With that beautiful argument throughout the first part of that chapter that speaks about Christ giving himself once for all. And then there's just an avalanche of possibilities. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ suffered and died the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. 1 John chapter 4, in this is love. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. It begins to become a little overwhelming, even unsettling, because you know you've got to pick one. Listen, you know this, the Bible loves to talk about our saving substitute. The Bible glories in the substitutionary work of Jesus. So where do you go? 
Where would you go? Well, here's where I went. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53? The book of Isaiah, 53rd chapter. I'm actually going to start at the end of chapter 52. Adam made reference to this relation a moment ago. Those last three verses of chapter 52 actually belong with chapter 53. Please follow along as I read. This is God's word. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is absolutely amazing. I think we should pray. So Father, we ask you for your help right now. I pray that you would give me right words and right weight. Help me to speak clearly, I pray. And God, I pray that you would do among all of us what only you can do. Would you take this word and suit it to every need? Father, you know every single heart in this room. And you're eager to bring this word to those hearts. And so, God, we pray, do it for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not infrequently in my role as a pastor, I have this very sweet privilege of sitting in my office and counseling with a young couple as they prepare for their upcoming marriage. It's pre-marriage counseling, and it is a wonderful privilege. And one of the exercise, uh, exercises that I have these couples do is uh, during the course of these sessions, I, I have them write down, each one of them, 10 reasons why I want to marry the other. I have them do that separately, and then when we meet for the next session, I have them kind of take their chairs and turn toward each other and pretend that I'm just not in the room, and they each proceed to read their list of reasons to each other. There are always, always lots of smiles and verbal expressions of appreciation, and often there are tears one being deeply affected by what the other has said. It is one of the sweetest things that happens in my office. And when they're done, I always say to them, don't let this be the last time you do that. Do this often. Regularly rehearse to one another the goodness of what God is giving you in this Relationship. Have these things close to the front of your minds. Have these things close to the front of your hearts. You know, that very same principle applies to our Christian lives as well. It is good for us to rehearse to ourselves and to one another all of the good that we have from God, especially what God has done for us in Christ. To get that in our minds again to have it clearly set before us so that we can marvel at it again and treasure it again and live in the good of it again. I mean, this incredible thing that's been done for us by God through Jesus, that's what I want us to do this afternoon. That's exactly what Isaiah 53 is in our Bibles to help us do. There's a Christian author who we have greatly appreciated over the years. Many of you will recognize his name. In fact, I think he's already been referenced today. His name is Jerry Bridges. And he wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace, which has been ever so useful to many people. And in that book, he wrote these words. Just listen. The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history. 
It is the only essential message in all of history, and yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. He goes on to say, I believe part of the problem is our tendency to give an unbeliever just enough of the gospel to get him or her to pray a prayer to receive Christ, and then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf, so to speak, and we go on to the duties of discipleship. And as a result, Christians, Christians are not instructed in the gospel. And because they do not fully understand the gospel, they do not understand the riches and glory of the gospel. They cannot live by it in their daily lives. His point is that we should regularly preach the gospel, rehearse this gospel, this good news. And Isaiah 53 helps us remarkably in this task. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus Christ shine more clearly than in Isaiah chapter 53. Nowhere does our saving substitute appear more gloriously than in Isaiah chapter 53. I mean, think about this. 700 years before Jesus came into the world, God opened the eyes of his prophet and enabled him to see into the very heart of Christ's saving work, and he had him write it down, and here it is. You're holding it before you right now. And so this evening, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, and I know that there's more than a few in that category this evening here, or maybe you've only been a Christian for a year, I imagine there might be someone in that group as well. However long you've been a believer, I want us to hear once again this amazing thing, this incredible news of what God did for us through Christ, in Christ. I just want us to experience again the amazing truth kind of washing over us and into us. Isaiah 53 is here in our Bibles for that purpose to set before us so that we can marvel at it once again what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you know this about the book of Isaiah. There is this, there is this striking figure who appears on the stage of this book at intervals. He's already been seen. Chapter 1 Sorry, chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we saw him last night in chapter 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to all the nations. And we know who it is, right? It's Jesus. And here in Isaiah chapter 53, that same figure, Jesus, steps into full view once again. You know, there's this wonderful moment that is recounted in the book of Acts. This guy named Philip, he's one of Jesus' disciples. He's told by God to go out to this road out in the middle of the desert. And as he goes out there, he meets this 
this diplomat from Ethiopia with his entourage. They're making their way back home down that long desert road. He had come up to visit Jerusalem, and this guy, this, this Ethiopian, is now reading, of all things, from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, something he must have picked up on his visit to Jerusalem. And the passage he's reading is this one. And at the moment that he encounters Philip, he's at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And when he sees Philip, he asks him, who is the prophet talking about? And as Luke records the story, which he no doubt heard directly from Philip, here's what he writes. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So here, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is born and lives and dies and rises from the dead, Isaiah speaks prophetically about Jesus, telling us what will happen. Listen, no person can do that. No person can do that. God is doing this. This is divinely imparted spiritual insight. And as a result, here is another moment in Isaiah where this figure emerges. Here he is again, but this time in a very different, very unexpected, almost unsettling way. Now, to help us this evening, I have three fairly straightforward questions and then three points of application. It's a pretty simple outline. First, the questions. Question number one, what is this that is being described here? Because it's different, it's a bit shocking. What's actually happening? Question number two, what is this all about? What is the purpose of what's happening? Is there some meaning to this? And question number three, why would God do this? So let's start with the first question. What is being described here in Isaiah chapter 53? Here's the answer. What's being described is the rejection, the suffering, and the death of the servant. The rejection, the suffering, and the death of Jesus. Now, I want to make sure we understand the flow of this passage. Those verses there at the end of chapter 52 are actually functioning as a, as a summary of what is laid out in chapter 53. Those verses at the end of chapter 52 provide this grand kind of summarizing, concluding. Interestingly, it's appearing first, but it's really a summarizing, concluding statement. Look at verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. That means what he does will come to success. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, skip down to verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That's a reference to a priest's cleansing work. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Kings are struck dumb. 
They have never heard of such a thing, and yet now they see it. So that's a summarizing statement, but then having made that summarizing statement in chapter 53, Isaiah proceeds to trace out a history of what will happen to this servant leading up to that triumph and that exaltation. So verse 2 of chapter 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Isaiah is saying this servant is going to have humble beginnings, very humble beginnings, like something growing out of a dry, unexpected place. Do you remember what some of those who would later become disciples of Jesus said when they first heard that Jesus was from, was from Nazareth? Nazareth. <laughs> Can anything good out, come out of Nazareth? That, that's like really dry ground up there. And as he grows, there's nothing, there's nothing special about him. He's ordinary. He's unimpressive. He's just the carpenter's boy. Nothing that's going to make people say, oh, now there is someone to keep your eye on. There's someone to kind of watch. You know, there's this very interesting thing happening right here in these chapters of Isaiah. I want you to see this. Isaiah is full of this kind of thing. Prior to chapter 53, in chapters 50 and 51 and earlier in chapter 52, Isaiah has been talking about the arm of the Lord. And what Isaiah means when he talks about the arm of the Lord is God's ability, his power to rescue and provide salvation for his people. The arm of the Lord is going to get that done. So just look, for example, back to chapter 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's been building for several chapters. Several times Isaiah mentions that. It's almost as if Isaiah is preparing for the arm of the Lord to be revealed. And then we read this in chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, no majesty, that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That doesn't sound very promising, does it? This doesn't look anything like what we would expect the arm of the Lord to look like. So who would believe that this servant is the arm of the Lord? He's unimpressive. In fact, he's despised. That's why Isaiah says in verse 1, who has believed what they've heard from us? Only those to whom the truth was revealed can see that this servant was, in fact, the arm of the Lord come to provide salvation for his people. But it's also different from what you would expect. Now, at some point, the servant enters into public life. Verse 3, he was despised, rejected. Even though he enters into public life, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. People are hiding their faces from him. He's despised and he's not esteemed. You know, when we, when we think of the sufferings of Christ, tell me if this isn't true in your own thinking. When we think about the sufferings of Christ, we tend to think immediately of his physical sufferings, right? The beatings, the nails in his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns, the excruciating pain of being hung on a cross. But friends, he suffered in other ways for us as well. 
rejection and disappointment and loneliness. Those are painful too. And Jesus entered into those for us as well. And then at some point, the servant is, he's accosted. He's unjustly arrested. He's taken and he is oppressed and ultimately killed. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We read multiple times in the Gospels during the account of Jesus' trial that he kept silent, that he did not answer. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave, oh, they killed him, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You know, the specificity of this prophecy is breathtaking at times. Because when you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 and you read, then there came a rich man who took his body and laid Jesus in his own tomb. That's not the end of the history, though, that is traced out here. Do you see what it says there at the end of verse 10? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What? After he's already dead and buried? What do you mean prolong his days? What is that? We'll come back to that in a minute. So question number one, what is being described here by the prophet in Isaiah chapter 53? Uh, chapter 53? It, it is the rejection, the suffering, and the death of the servant who is Jesus. Second, question number two, what is this all about? What is the purpose of this rejection and suffering and death? Is there some meaning to this? Well, let me answer that question with one word. Here it is. Substitution. Substitution. This idea of substitution is present all throughout this passage, but it shows up with special force and emphasis in verses 4 through 6. Just listen to these verses again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you hear it? I mean, like over and over and over again, if I count rightly, seven clear statements of substitution in those three verses. Here, in Isaiah chapter 53, you have one of the most profound presentations of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Look with me closely at verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I mean, here is the essence 
of rebellion and unbelief, people going their own way. You know, the nice thing about going your own way is that if you can, if you can manage to put God out of your mind, then going your own way doesn't feel like rebellion. It just feels like you've taken responsibility for your life. And that seems like that should be okay, right? In fact, that seems good. I'm just living my life. But this is the great sin. Turning away from the truth that there is a God and that he is God and that we owe him our allegiance. You know, we, we can talk about sins. We can talk about sins all day. People don't mind talking about sins so much. But all of these sins are just the fruit of this sin that is in all of us that people don't like to acknowledge. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But then you read the rest of verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you can just step outside of yourself for a moment and think clearly for just a moment, you read that and you say, wait a second, clearly some mistake has been made. There's been some misunderstanding. Why does someone else bear the iniquity of another person? That's not right. Friends, this is the very heart of the gospel. This substitution. Paul said it to the Corinthians. Remember this, chapter 15? He reminds them of the gospel. He preached to them, I delivered to you what I first received as a matter of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Now, did you notice what I just did with my hands? Christ died for our sins. When I was a little guy, maybe six or seven years old, I remember coming out of a Sunday school class one morning, and you know how six or seven-year-old boys are after Sunday school class. And I just was ready to get out of there, and so I made my way out the door, and then I heard my Sunday school teacher call my name, and so, you know, that kind of pulls you up short, and you turn around, and I saw her do one of these. Come here. And she said, hold out your hand. And so I held out my hand, and this is what she did. She said, I will never leave you. And she folded up my hand. She said, that's a promise from God for you, and you can take that with you wherever you go. And I've never forgotten that. And so I want to give it to you. But put it in your other hand so you can free this one up for the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Those five words capture the heart of the gospel. This is the great message of the good news. He takes our place. And you don't have to understand everything about that in order to benefit from it. But let's try to understand it a little bit. Let's ask the question, why was this necessary? Well, it's necessary because sin cannot just be ignored. Nobody, nobody wants a God who ignores sin. God will not, he cannot, he, he, he just will not act as though our sin is no big deal, that it doesn't matter. But because of his great love for us, God does not want his people to have to bear the penalty for our own sins. That's like really important. Say that again. God does not want his people to have to bear the penalty for 
their own sins, so he sends this servant to bear our iniquities, to bear our sin. Look near the end of verse 12, the second to last line there, yet he bore the sin of many. And friends, if our sin has been carried by another, if our sin has been borne by another, well then, we bear it no more. We are no longer held guilty before God. We are acquitted. Friends, sins are not punished twice by a just God. God does not sentence both his servant and us to death for the same sins. If he bears them, we don't. Do you, do you see? The loving shepherd in the place of the lost sheep. The exalted king in the place of the rebel subject. And as a result, we get healed. We get peace. Verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. So, the woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved, when she turns to him, to this one, and trusts in him, this servant's suffering and death washes all that sin and shame off her. It's gone. The man held in bondage to his lust or to his pride or to his possessions who has discovered after much damage done to himself and to others that there is no joy there, only emptiness, only self-hatred. When he turns to this one and trusts in him, this servant's sufferings and death washes all that sin and shame off him. I mean, you fill in your own situation. What is happening in the suffering and death of Jesus is his substitution for you, for me. Your sins laid on him, my sin laid on him, his punishment in my place so that we can be counted righteous. We can be healed. We can be free. We can be at peace. Now, third, question number three. Why would God do that? Let me make something very clear here. When I say God, why would God do that? I mean both God the Father, who is here spoken of as the Lord. Do you see that? Full capitals, verse 10, for example. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Do you see that? All caps. That's God the Father. And the Son, this servant, they are both God, and their will is one. They have one heart in this matter. So why would they do this? Well, clearly, both Lord 
and servant are after something here. I mean, think of it. What, what good father could will for his son to be crushed and the son agree to that unless there was some unquestionably greater good to be obtained? So what exactly was accomplished in all of this? Verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant. That word will actually has the meaning of desire, even pleasure. The father was pleased to do this. How could God the father be pleased by his crushing of his son? Let's be ever so clear here. God's pleasure is not in the son's suffering itself. There's a word for that. Cruelty. But it is in what the son would accomplish in his suffering and his death. That is what is pleasing to God. That is what he finds pleasure in. He wants to show us mercy. He wants to forgive and heal and save us. Listen, there are two things named here that the son accomplishes. Look first at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He will bear away the guilt of their sin and by so doing bring them into a state of being, you see it there? Counted righteous. No longer under any condemnation. What does Romans chapter 8 verse 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are justified. Declared righteous, counted righteous. It's amazing. Listen, friends, if you are in Christ, there is no word of condemnation, whether that word be spoken by your own heart or by the enemy of your soul, there is no word of condemnation that can be spoken against you that has not already been answered at the cross. It's done. God says to you, my child... Everything I need to say about your sin has already been said at the cross. And notice, please, verse 11 says, Many, my servant shall make many to be accounted righteous. And if you have turned and put your trust in Christ, you are in that many. That's one thing he accomplished. But then look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall see his children. What is so satisfying to Jesus? What is so pleasing to the Father? It's looking out on a great multitude of people from every race and every tribe and every language and every nation who have trusted him and been forgiven and are accounted righteous and who are now his precious sons and daughters. His offspring, the fruit of his travail. You see, his death and his resurrection not only give us forgiveness, 
a right standing before God, but they make us family. They create the reality of us being in God's family. Out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus will see that and he will rejoice and be satisfied. He's not going to be bitter over all he went through, not vengeful, not self-pitying, which is exactly why we hear God's voice of triumph and victory and vindication right at the beginning of this. Remember back in chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall succeed. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And that's why the kings of the earth will be struck dumb. Kings who are used to talking and having everybody listen to them will shut their mouths because of him. Why? Because the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The arm of the Lord is this servant. The arm of the Lord is Jesus reaching out to save every last person who puts their trust in him and make them precious sons and daughters. Listen, even though there are admittedly some dark shadows in this passage, overall, the light in Isaiah 53 is very bright. This really is a song of triumph. God's will will prosper. God's purposes to save will be accomplished. Many will be saved. Many will be accounted righteous. Many offspring, sons and daughters, will be brought home, and Jesus will rejoice. In the book of Hebrews, we read these words, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What joy? The joy of seeing many people saved, and by that, God's glory made great. All of God's purposes in the death of Jesus will succeed. And the servant, Jesus, will be so full of joy. All right, that's the text. There's the truth. It's God's truth. How should we respond? Let me suggest three things. Know, rest, and sing. Know, rest, and sing. First, know. I want to be very clear here. As important as truth is, our lives as Christians are not first and foremost about truth. They are first and foremost about new life in Christ. The life of Christ in us. But... A major way that we enjoy that life, that we experience our life in Christ, that we enter fully into our life in Christ is by renewing our minds in the truth of the gospel. By letting the truth of the gospel get deep into us. Truth serves life. Reminding, I love that word, reminding ourselves 
of the gospel is a means by which, I would argue, a major means by which we enjoy our life in Christ. So we need the gospel regularly before us, before our minds, in our thoughts. So know this truth. Know where to find it. So you can go and place it before your mind, so you can, you can dwell on it. So go to Isaiah 53 and meditate. Go to Romans chapter 3, go to Hebrews 7 and 9 and 10. Dwell on this beautiful truth. Get 2 Corinthians 5.21 and 1 Peter 3.18 and 1 John 4.10 on your short list. Go and go often and meditate so that you can know this amazing truth deep in your soul. Second, rest. Once you know this truth, friends, rest in this truth. This truth is like solid ground to stand on and for you to find in it, on it, not just joy, but peace. Rest. Maybe you can imagine this scene. I want to stress it is an imaginary scene. You're standing before God on that great day, and he says to you, welcome home. And you say, thank you. <laughs> but aren't you going to say anything about that sin? And at first, we might imagine God saying, with a somewhat surprised look on his face, what? Didn't you have a Bible? Didn't you read it? Didn't you see what I put in there for you to know? Didn't your pastor ever teach you about what Christ did? Who was your pastor? <laughs> now, of course, that won't happen. If anything is needed at that moment at all, God will simply say, child, everything I need to say about that sin has already been said. Welcome home. Listen to this wonderful testimony from John Bunyan, the man who gave us Pilgrim's Progress. He writes this, One day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest all was not yet right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul, Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for my righteousness was there before him. I also saw, moreover, listen, I think you're going to like this. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday and today and forever. Christian, rest in your saving substitute. He has done all that is needed. You can be at peace. So first, know, second, rest, and then third, sing. Look for opportunities to sing. Make opportunities to sing this truth, 
It glorifies Christ. So sing. Now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? And sing, we sang this last night, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overturn the grave. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. And sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And sing. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. And sing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And sing. I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on the judgment tree. And sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And sing, one more. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So is there anybody else who feels like singing? <laughs> then let's. Bob. Um,